Well, as I said, my name is Mike, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here. Uh, and it's, it's exciting. We have made it to the season of Advent. I mean, all of that work, all of that time, the entire year has come, and we are here at the beginning of another new year. Exciting season, waiting for Christmas. I love Advent, I think, mostly because of the music. Uh, some of my favorite hymns are Advent hymns. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Uh, Angel Gabriel, what child is this? And I think the reason I love them so much is the same reason I love Advent so much. They're kind of minor songs. They're kind of dark. Uh, but they have so much joy embedded within them. Last year in Advent, we did a series uh, on the, the birth narratives in Luke. So looking at all the stories leading up to Jesus' birth. But this year, we're going to do something entirely different. Uh, we're going to do a series called King of Hearts. Uh, and this series is going to focus on that parable that we just heard read, the parable of the prodigal son, or sometimes called the parable of the lost son, or the two sons. And this might seem like a bit of a strange thing to do in Advent, preach on the parable of the, the, the son. Uh, but there's some method to the madness. Let me explain. As I already said in the announcements, Advent is a season of preparation and expectation, preparing to celebrate God's coming in Christ the first time, preparing an expectation of him coming again in judgment at the last day. It's a season of living in that tension between the two comings, recognizing that we need God desperately, but that our hearts and our lives are unprepared for that. We're a messed up people. We're a broken people. And there's two reasons why I think the parable of the prodigal son is such a brilliant text to study in Advent. And the first is that it helps us to understand who this Jesus is that came and who's going to come again. And second, it helps us to understand how we need to prepare our hearts for his coming. So by way of introduction to this parable and by way of introduction to this series, I want to just spend a few minutes unpacking both of those things. Let me just grab a drink. So first, the parable helps us understand who this Jesus is that came and is coming. In other words, this parable helps us to understand why we make such a big deal about Jesus. Not only at Advent, not only at Christmas, but all year. And I'm sure most of you know this parable in some form or another. I mean, it has made its way into all different areas of culture, whether you're a Christian, you've spent your life in the church, or you haven't. You've probably come across it in some way. But what you probably don't know is where it comes in the gospel, why it is that Jesus tells this parable. It says right at the beginning of chapter 15 in Luke, it says this, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. This man receives sinners and eats with them. And in response to this criticism, Jesus tells three stories. The first is about a man who had a hundred sheep, and he lost one of them. And he leaves the 99, and he goes in search of the one that went off. And when he finds it, he brings it back, he calls all his friends together, all of his neighbors, and he throws a big party to celebrate the return of this sheep. The second is about a woman who loses a coin. She has 10 silver coins and she loses one of them. And she lights a lamp and she looks all over her house to try to find it. And when she finds it, she calls in her friends and her neighbors and they throw a big party to celebrate the fact that they've found it. And at the end of both of these parables, Jesus says, uh, truly I tell you, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who returns than over all the other righteous people who have no need to repent. But then he tells this third parable in quick succession. And it's a lot more complex, this parable. It's the one we heard, read, the parable of the prodigal son. And all three of these together form Jesus' response to the Pharisees. Each of these parables revolves around something being lost and found, something going astray and returning home. 
And for those who are listening to Jesus tell this parable, they're probably not quite thinking in those terms of lost and found, astray and returning. They're thinking in a different set of terms. They're thinking about exodus and restoration. Now let me explain what I mean by that. Exodus and restoration. This is Israel. This is a Jewish primary way of understanding who they are as a people. You might have say, heard me say this before, but if you ask a Jew, like, what is the defining event in your history as a people? It's the exodus. The fact that they went off to a foreign country, to Egypt. They became slaves in that place. And then God came in and rescued them from slavery. Exodus and restoration. And this pattern happens over and over again in the Old Testament. Now, does that sound familiar? Think about this parable. The son leaves his father. He goes off into a far country, and he becomes a slave. And eventually, he returns to his father. In case you're not seeing the connection, it is early in the morning. Uh, I'll make it very clear. This is a parable about Israel's relationship with God. It is a, is a parable about our relationship with God. That's what this parable is about. And this is really significant because Israel at this time, when Jesus is telling it, still thinks that they haven't returned home yet. They still think that God hasn't come and rescued them and brought them home. They're awaiting somebody who's going to do that. They're awaiting a Messiah. They're awaiting this king that was prophesied in the Old Testament, a king from the line of David, who's going to come, restore them to relationship with God, make it all right again. And these are the expectations that are at play when Jesus shows up and starts teaching, and starts doing all these miracles, and doing all this incredible stuff. And the question that everybody's asking is, is this guy the one that we've been waiting for? Is he the one who's going to restore us to relationship with God, who's going to free us from oppression under the Romans? Is he the one who's going to put everything back to right again? And this parable is a bomb that Jesus drops in the middle of these expectations. And he says, yeah, I am that one. I am the one who was promised. I'm the one who's going to restore Israel back to God. In fact, I'm the one who's going to restore not just Israel, but all people back to God, all nations, even those that you, Pharisees, don't think deserve it. Tax collectors, sinners, Pharisees, prostitutes, foreigners, adulterers. I'm going to bring those people in as well. So what Jesus is doing with this parable is announcing that he is the one who's going to effect this return. But this return is going to look nothing like what you expected. Jesus is putting himself in this story as the father. And he's saying, if you don't get on board with what's happening, then you're going to miss out. So that's what this parable is ultimately about in a big picture. And that's the first reason why it's such a brilliant text to look at in Advent. Because it tells us who this Jesus is. This is Jesus saying, this is who I am. This is what I'm going to do. And I think as the weeks unfold, we're going to see that more and more. But the second reason is that this parable helps us to understand who we are as people and how we are to prepare our own hearts for God's return. And what's wonderful about the parables is that they don't just teach, they act. They invite us to come into the story, to become characters in the story as we imagine ourselves as the, the younger son or the older son. And because of this, we frame this series around the heart. The first week, this week, is called The Wandering Heart, and it's about the son leaving his father. Next week, we're going to look at the sons thinking, you know what, maybe I should go back to my father. The third week, we're going to look at the son actually going back to his father and his father's extravagant welcome. And in the last week, we're going to look at the older son and his reluctance to celebrate over all this stuff that's happening. There's not going to be easy answers as we go through each of these weeks. We're not going to tie up each sermon with a nice little bow. 
It's not going to be like watching an episode of Full House, where you get like a really beautiful conclusion at the end. It's all very neat, lots of pretty music, and pretty little girls with blonde hair. It's not going to be like that. It's going to be like reading a novel. And every time you set it down, you're in the middle of it. And you're not going to get any resolution. You're getting more and more of the story, but there's no resolution each week. So if we've done it right, that's what it should feel like. But one caveat before we continue about this, and this is really important, it's that even though this parable invites us into it, it invites us into the story as actors in it, we have to remember what this story is ultimately about. It's a story about Israel's relationship with God, about all of our relationships with God. We can get ourselves into all sorts of trouble with this parable when we start trying to apply it straight across to situations in our own life. Relationships with our own father, our own mother, our own brother, our own sister, our own friend. It doesn't apply straight across. You have to remember what this is about. And I don't want to rule out what the Spirit might do in your heart through this parable in terms of those relationships. Um, relationships that very well might be broken at the moment. But I know from experience that this parable can be very damaging when we try to just apply it straight across. This is ultimately about our relationship with God, all of our relationships with God. Does that make sense? Okay. So, caveat aside, let us get into the text. So open up your Bibles. Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse 11. If you've got one on your phone, pull it up. If you've got a paper copy, even better. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. That is our text for this morning, a cheery and very joyful text. That is not true. But there are two things that I want to look at out of this parable, out of this section of it anyway, just two things. The first is the quality of the father's love as it's displayed in this section. And the second is the quality of the son's rejection. So the father's love and the son's rejection is the only two things we're going to talk about this morning. So the father's love, let's start right at the very beginning. Verse 11, there was a man who had two sons. There was a man who had two sons. As I said earlier, this parable is usually called, it probably even is in your Bible, the parable of the prodigal son, or the parable of the lost son, or the, the two sons. But if there's any doubt about who this parable is actually about, this first line should clear it up. There was a man who had two sons. Not a son who had a father and a brother, or two brothers who had a father. There was a man. It's about the father. This is a story about the Father. And since Jesus is putting himself in this story as the Father, we can say that this is, in fact, a parable about Jesus. And all the stuff that he's going to be enacting on behalf of God the Father. Let's keep reading. Verse 12, beginning of it. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now, I don't know how you hear this part of the parable. Give me the share of the property that's coming to me. This might not sound that bizarre in the world that you come from. I mean, we, we probably all know people who have wealthy parents who've given them some share of inheritance in their lifetime. That's not out of the usual for this part of the world. 
But to read this parable that way would be to totally misunderstand what Jesus is saying with it. There's a brilliant commentator named Kenneth Bailey who spent most of his life living in the Middle East. And he wrote a book called Poet and Peasant. And it's all about Jesus' parables and how they would be heard by Middle Easterners. And here's what he says about the, father's or about the son's request to his father. For over 15 years, I've been asking people of all walks of life, from Morocco to India, from Turkey to the Sudan, about the implications of a son's request for his inheritance while the father is still living. The answer has almost always been emphatically the same. The conversation runs as follows. Has anyone ever made such a request in your village? Kenneth asks. Never. Could anyone ever make such a request? Impossible. If anyone ever did, what would happen? His father would beat him, of course. Why? This request means he wants his father to die. This is how we have to hear the son's request for money, for his inheritance from his father. This is not a simple request for money. It's a declaration to his father's face, I wish you were dead. But instead of beating him as every Middle Eastern, respectable Middle Eastern father would have done, he obeys his son's request. Look at verse 12 again, the second half of it. And he divided his property between them. That is, between the younger son and the older son. And this is going to become significant later on, that the elder son got his share as well. But this wasn't an equal split between the two of them. The elder son would have received two-thirds of it, and this younger son just a third. But it's still a significant amount of money. Still a significant share of the property and of the possessions. But it gets worse. Look at verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country. See, after the father had signed over his possessions to his son, his son now had ownership, but he didn't have the right to dispose of it. He didn't have the right to sell it. The father still had the right to live off of the land, to live off of the proceeds of the land, all of his stuff. But the younger son wants more. So he says to his father that he wants to sell it. He demands to his father that he allow him to sell it all immediately. And the implication of both of these requests would be that he would rather his father were dead. But it's even stronger in the second part of selling all of this stuff. I want you dead. And in light of all of this, the fact that the father actually agrees to this request is remarkable. It's difficult to imagine a more dramatic illustration of a father's love than is evident in this scene. Listen to what one commentator says about this scene. The shepherd in his search for the sheep, that's the first parable, and the woman in her search for the coin, the second parable, do not do anything out of the ordinary beyond what anyone in their place would do. But the actions of the father the actions that the father takes in the third story are unique, marvelous, divine actions, which have not been done by any father in the past. What's so remarkable about the father's love is that he doesn't force it on his son. He couldn't compel his son to stay home with him. He lets him go in freedom when he asks for that. What's more, he actually makes it possible for his son to go. He gives him his inheritance that he asks for. He lets him sell it. The father makes it possible for the son to leave him. And we need to make a couple of leaps to see the significance of this. We have to remember who Jesus is telling this parable to. He's telling it to all those people who were gathered. Sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and adulterers. But he's also telling it to the religious elite. 
And he's reminding them, he's humbling them and saying, this is how God has dealt with you, your whole history as a people. You have run away constantly, and God has let you do it. And he has always been here. There are people who've left God again and again to go after idols and the gods of all the people that are around them. And God's let them do it. He's never stopped them. And he's never stopped loving them in the midst of it. But he lets them go in freedom. And in parallel to this, we can make a second leap, which is to say that this is how God approaches us. To be reading a parable, to hear a parable, is to be invited to be an actor in it. So this is how we too are to understand the Father's love for us. He sits there and he listens as we scream and as we tell him we hate him, that we wish he was dead, and yet he never responds in kind to us. He lets us go in freedom. He never forces his love. He never forces a relationship with us. And that is the quality of the Father's love in this parable. And it's the quality of God's love for us, Jesus is saying. Each and every one of us. And yet, despite this unparalleled display of God's love, the Father's love in this story, the Son still cannot wait to get out of there. He still cannot wait to leave. And that moves us into the second part of this story, the Son's rejection. Let's keep reading in this story. Chapter 15, verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. All of this is happening quickly in the story. It's unfolding quickly. And as Bailey observes, that commentator I was telling you about before, it's not simply because the son wants to get away, that he's anxious to get away. Now, as the son goes from door to door, from one prospective buyer of his father's property and stuff to the next, the intensity of the community's hatred of him and their disgust of him would grow and grow. Around every corner, he would have been greeted with amazement, with horror, with rejection over what he was trying to do. People would be saying, why would a son act this way towards his father? Why would he do this? Maybe they took pity on his father. I mean, how could you have a son like that? Or maybe they were disgusted with his father too. What kind of father would allow this to happen? What kind of father would be so foolish that he wouldn't beat his son, but he would give it to him? So not only does the son shame himself, he shames his father in the process too. And once he had sold it all, he set off for a far country far from his family, far from his past life, far from the village he grew up in, and most importantly, far from his father. And in that country, he squandered everything he had, all of his property, in reckless, careless living. And there are no other details in the text as to what this life actually looked like, but it doesn't take much of an imagination to fill in the details. Parties, drinking, rich food, women, friends. You can burn through a fortune pretty quickly living a life like this. I was watching a documentary last week called Secrets of Selfridges. Yes, I watch documentaries on Netflix. Um, and it's part of a series, Secrets of High Clare Castle, Secrets of This and That. Uh, but it, it, was, it was a really interesting one. It was about a department store in London called Selfridges, started by an American man in 1909 named Harry Gordon Selfridge. And the department store did very, very well. He started it when he was middle-aged. He moved to the UK, started this department store. He made an absolute fortune on this department store. They pioneered everything. They pioneered the countdown to Christmas Day 
in shopping. They pioneered the perfume department on the main floor. I mean, you name it in a department store, Harry Gordon Selfridge figured it out. And he lived a life that was, that was apt for somebody of that kind of wealth. He had yachts and castles and parties and everything he could possibly ask for. And in his old age, he fell in love with a, a set of twin sisters. He was married, but he fell in love with his twin sisters who were actresses and burlesque dancers. And uh, him and one of the sisters, in turn, fell in love with gambling. All these card games at French casinos. And it's estimated that out of the company's coffers in those years that he was doing this, he spent about 200, in today's money, 200 million pounds in gambling debts. And you can imagine that the board of directors called a meeting, they invited him to it, and they fired him. They gave him a meager pension. He was an old man. They gave him kind of an honorary title, which they eventually stripped from him as well. But the devastating part about the story is that his life ended, and every day in his old age, he would take the bus from his tiny apartment to Oxford Street, and he would stand across from his store, and looking more and more threadbare as the years went on, counting his, his copper coins in his hand to see if he had enough money to get home on the bus, looking worse and worse to the point that eventually he was arrested for being a vagrant. And he died a few years later of pneumonia, age of 89, in utter poverty. It's just a tragic, tragic story. And I mean, this is the kind of life that this son is living in this parable. And I think it's such a brilliant illustration of it, about how life can be ruined by the pursuit of the, the good life. But the really important thing to see in the son's leaving of his father in this story isn't so much the expensive, the, the wasteful material life. It's his leaving his father. Like that is what's really at issue here. And he's going to go out and he's going to spend all the money that his father gave him on people that don't know his father, on people who wouldn't even want to know his father. And what Jesus has in mind here as he utters this parable is Israel's own leaving of their God, all of our going after other gods. We put ourselves in this story, we see that this is our natural state to wander from God. And this comes in all forms in our culture. You've probably said them yourself. I'm on a journey towards something. I'm finding myself. I'm in a season of doubting. I'm trying on something different in terms of religion. And we revere this in our culture. We see this as a very, very good thing, the search for self-discovery. It's good. It's noble. As though life is just as likely to be found somewhere else other than with the Father. And then we get this fateful line in verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. The money runs out. Parties are over. Drinks are gone. Fine food is gone. Women, friends, they're all gone. And even worse, a famine shows up in a country where he's without money, without family, without friends. And this would have been a really powerful image in that culture. For anyone hearing Jesus tell this parable, a lone Jew in a far country full of people that are not his relatives, and a famine comes, so vulnerable. There's no social support. There's no government assistance. And that's why verse 14 really emphasizes this when it says he began to be in need. In other words, he, more than other people, began to be in need because he has no one. He left with his pride a bucket full of money, and here he is, empty, humiliated, in defeat. And even though it looks like he's hit rock bottom in this story, he's not quite there yet. This still is not enough to make him return home 
to his father. Look at verse 15. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. The younger son does the only thing he can think of. He goes and he finds someone who's got money and he tries to attach himself to him. And Bailey points out that this is the, the polite way in the Middle East of getting rid of somebody that you don't want hanging around is to give them a job that there's no way that they would do. A job so low, so base, that there's no way they would agree to do it. But the prodigal's pride isn't broken yet. And he accepts this job of pig herder to this Gentile. Pigs are an unclean animal to Jews. But here's the prodigal slopping pigs for his Gentile master. He wouldn't have been able to observe the Sabbath. He, wouldn't have, he would have been working with unclean animals. One other commentator says he basically renounces his religion by taking this job. This is the rock bottom beneath rock bottom. And the irony is, though, even though this is the lowest point of his life, it's still the height of his pride as a person. Right before it all comes crashing down. This life which began in freedom, serving his good and loving and generous father, ends in as near as makes no difference, slavery. He ends as a slave, essentially, in a foreign country. And then you get this final tragic line in the description of his descent. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. What's so tragic to me about this line is not his isolation. It's not even his hunger. It's the fact that he's fallen so far from his father that he's forgotten what's on offer to him. He doesn't long for the warmth of his father, his father's embrace. He doesn't long for the food of his father's table. He longs to be fed with the pods that the pigs are eating. He's forgotten who he is. He's forgotten that he is his father's son, that he was made for more than that. He's fallen so far that he doesn't even know what to long for anymore. And I think this, this right here, is the default position of our hearts as a people. We want everything God can give us. We want it all. All the good stuff in life. All the gifts. All the talent. And then we want to go as far and as fast away from God as we can. And we want to just squander it. We're so broken. We are so helpless that we don't even know what to ask for anymore. That is what's so tragic about this. And the question I keep asking myself as I've gone through this text is why? Why does he do this? I mean, th there's no answers. Is it the attractiveness of this other life? The attractiveness of wealth, of doing it my way, of living however I want, no moral authority breathing down my neck? Is it that we're experiential learners? That we don't want someone telling us what to do or not to do? We need to make our own mistakes. We need to figure this out on our own. Is it that we need, in some way, to earn our own way to God? We don't want to be suffocated by the love of this Father. We don't want to be handed everything. So we reject him. We demand our inheritance. And then he has the gall to actually give it to us. And instead of endearing us to him, it just makes us want to run all the faster and farther. It's the kind of generosity that repels rather than attracts. The problem is that Jesus doesn't tell us in this parable why the Son does it. And the truth is, it doesn't really matter why. 
It's something that we have all done. It's something that we all continue to do. It's the rut in all of us. We fall into it and we just keep going with it. We're going to sing a song to close the service, Come Thou Fount. It's one of my favorite hymns because it has these two just devastating lines in it. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And I mean, this is me as much as it's anybody else. I've spent the majority of my life inside the church singing these songs, hearing these sermons, teaching others, preaching these sermons, praying. And yet I continue to go after all of this other stuff, trying to make myself happy in all sorts of other ways. Paper, plastic, metal, relationships, whatever it might be. And I continue to say to the God who has given me everything that I have, all the best things that I've ever known, I continue to say, I wish you were dead. But the remarkable thing about this God the one we've come to know in the coming of Jesus, the one we wait for in this season of Advent, is that he never responds in kind. He lets us go. He lets us run as far as we want to go. And so as we begin this journey towards Bethlehem in Advent, we need to first see how screwed up we really are. We need to see the severity of our rejection of God. That we, like the younger son, like Israel, we demand everything from God, and then we try to get as far and as fast away from him as we possibly can.